IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss new music from The National, Mac DeMarco, and Smashing Pumpkins. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He was just traded to the Jets for a bunch of draft picks. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I really wish we had kind of centered this joke around like another music podcast. Like, you know, like they trade me to Endless Scroll for like, you know, Michael for a few weeks and maybe like a few uh, Patreon subscriptions or something like that. Or they're trading me to like the Pitchfork podcast for... I don't know, like a best new mu- like a best new reissue for a drive by truckers album or something. I think I would aim I would negotiate with the New York Times people. Oh, podcast. Uh, w- <laughs> with podcast, I'll trade you for Caramanica and maybe like a couple of their uh, you know, uh young uh freelancers, <laughs> you know, up and comers, bring them over here. Uh I think that could have been a good trade. Uh I'm referring in my little joke, of course, to Aaron Rodgers, my quarterback for 15 years, getting traded to the New York Jets. We're going to do a little sports cast on this. This is going to be a brief sports cast um, because I feel like I have to publicly address this issue and, and, and you'll indulge me here. I was just thinking about the Jordan Love era, which is now officially beginning for the Packers, but like the Jordan Love gets drafted by the Packers era, mm. which I feel like has totally overwhelmed uh, Aaron Rodgers' career because people don't remember what he was like before Jordan Love got drafted. Like Jordan Love getting drafted broke Aaron Rodgers' brain. Like that and the uh the pandemic yeah, not the ayahuasca the not like the going full joe rogan but like actual competition well those, are, well those were symptoms of him having a broken brain ah. he wasn't doing the ayahuasca stuff before jordan love got drafted like something happened to him because before that he was kind of a quirky guy he was sensitive you know he would hold grudges but he wasn't uh, like this aspect of his personality, like was not well known. Like he was, like I feel like he was g- like generally liked mm-hmm. in the 2010s. You know, people thought he was a great quarterback. He seemed, uh, I think, relatively bland. You know, he's just on the State Farm commercials and all that stuff. And then Jordan Love gets drafted, and that's when he starts, you know, talking about, uh, you know, questioning authority and 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 going into these sort of conspiracy theory type. Uh, talks with like Pat McAfee and all that junk. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm trying to remember before that now because I want to just feel like okay, this is the second quarterback of my life that has gone to the Jets. Brett Favre did this. That's where he went right after leaving the Packers. I think it's funny that every cultural artifact starts in New York <laughs> and ends up in Green Bay 15 years later, except for quarterbacks. It's like the reverse. Of how these things normally work, like bands, fashion, trends. You know, they all start in New York, and then Green, and then you see them in Green Bay, like fifteen years later after they're already worn out. But quarterbacks, it's like a reverse thing. I feel like I'm just talking here. Uh, you know, uh, I'm doing like free verse here. Does Does any of this matter to you at all? Is are you just indulging me here on my Aaron Rodgers public uh, expressions of confusion and? 
and and somewhat reconciliation. Yeah, we're just going like straight up Sportzilla and the Jabber Jocks here. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think that like we we sometimes indulge in you know we maybe this is like the version of us like tanking to like you know justify my trade to Popcast. Like we're just like resting all the starters, doing load management or whatever. Um, I, I actually just spent the past uh, 30 seconds looking up to see if Don Mikowski got traded to the Jets, but uh, it turns out that was the uh, Indianapolis Colts. But I was going to say, he ended up with the Colts and didn't do yeah. anything with them. I, I just like how this ties in potentially to uh, our discussion of you know three major artists who have taken you know various turns uh, towards the obscure, uh, you know, over the past uh, decade or so with Smashing Pumpkins and Mac DeMarco. And I mean, like it again, it sounds like you have warm feelings towards Aaron Rodgers. Uh, but I'm trying to. Yeah. I mean, he he really got on my nerves in the last few years. It was tiresome. Uh-huh. You know, I felt like I had to defend this guy, even though I didn't really want to. And then coupled with the playoff futility, uh, it, it it was just uh, I, I was tired. I'm I'm glad that he's gone. Like I'm excited for the Jordan Love era. I may feel differently in November or December, but right now I feel a lot of excitement for the season. But yeah, I I want to you know it's like when you break up with someone, you want to remember the good times. You don't want to remember like the last six months, like when things were horrible, and that's why you broke up. You want to remember like the first two years when you liked each other. So. I'm trying to have that perspective with 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 Aaron Rodgers at this point because I did I do have a lot of good sports memories mm-hmm. tied up with him, but I don't know if you're a Packers fan. There's like a problematic relationship with like the last two quarterbacks now. Yeah, Brett Favre obviously <laughs> damaged. Good. I mean, Brett Favre. I mean, I don't even know. Like, is is he going to be like? setting fire to orphanages at this point. Like, I just feel like, w- like what's the next shoe to drop with, with Brett Favre? Yeah. I, and then Rodgers has all of his weirdness. So, But it's like these are like the two biggest athletes of like my life as a sports fan. So, like, I, I don't know. I'm very conflicted with this. Yeah, I think, though, you know, there's the wish you well sort of thing, like that scene with uh, Bruce Springsteen in High Fidelity where you want to take the high road and – you know, wish someone well, or there's like the alternative where you just want to see your ex get whatever the their life equivalent is of getting traded to the Jets. You know, I think if you're, right. I think if you're feeling really spiteful, uh, this is like the best possible outcome. It's sort of like how people were wishing that Donald Trump would actually like follow through on getting nominated for Speaker of the House, so he'd have to like miserably show up to the House like every single day and listen to like all this like filibustering. If 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 you have like just the tiniest bit of spite, like this is the best possible outcome. So everyone wins. Yeah, he's not even the best quarterback in his division right now. Like, and he has been that for the entirety of his career. NFC North. I mean, there hasn't been a whole lot of competition in that regard. I mean, maybe you want to say Kirk Cousins was the best QB in the NFC North last year. You could you could say that. But you know, Josh Allen obviously is the is the man in the AFC East. Tua, Tua yeah, I, I don't know what's going on with him. I heard that he considered retirement, yeah. and I kind of wish he that guy's would. brain is I broken mean, for real. Like we're not talking about yeah, brain exactly. worms, <laughs> uh, like you know, trying right. to find like raw water and asking questions about ivermectin. Um, yeah, like Tua's brain's like yeah. actually fucking broken in a sad way. Yeah, that poor guy. Yeah, yeah he, 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 I. I 
Anyway, we should wrap up sportscast here. Do you want to? Do you have any Padres talk you want to do quick or? Baseball in April is me just checking the standings every five days or so just to see, like, are the Padres good yet? Oh, no, they're still 12 and 13 and, like, getting five hit by the Cubs. Uh, I'm just going to, like, check back in in July when there's not the NBA playoffs going on. Yeah, like, I should say my Bucks. you know, I, I'm trying to remember if there's going to be a game before we post on Friday. <laughs> I think there is. I don't is. know, but, I mean... Uh, don't let Jimmy you know, Butler Jimmy, fucking hear this. He's gonna like drop sixty on them I, out of spite. I'm at. A, I'm paying homage to Jimmy Butler, yeah. man. He like he murdered us, man. <laughs> um, do we have any LeBron Dylan Brooks takes? Nah, here? LeBron Dylan Brooks <laughs> is like the. I, I, it fucking pains me because I love Memphis. I love the grit and grind Grizzlies, but like. You remember, like, what, Three Six Mafia won the won the Oscar for it's like hard out there for a pimp, which is like this really, it's like a bad Three Six Mafia song. It's a song that like you know, you have. That's the kind of song you needed to make hustle and flow. By the way, one of the worst fucking movies of that ilk I've ever seen. The uh, backdoor man to back that ass up speech from DJ Qual is one of the most embarrassing scenes in movie history. But that's what I feel like watching the Grizzlies. It's like this outline of something that I would really enjoy, but just a sanitized version. Like, I cannot fucking believe that a team that prides itself on being tough guys is getting, like, their card pulled by the Lakers of all teams. It's just sad to behold. Well, it's, you know, I was thinking before when we were talking about Rodgers, the, you know, the separate the art from the artist mm-hmm. conversation, which is something that happens in music. And it, feel, it, it seems like people have a hard time doing that. Mm-hmm. Whereas in sports, people do it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because you got John Morant pulling like a gun on a teenager, like that story. Yeah, the 1993 <laughs> like, Phillies, like all of whom are dirtbags for real. Like Kurt yeah. Schilling, Lenny Dykstra. Like I don't even want to get into all their extracurriculars. Did you see that Mets documentary? Uh, it was like a four. Oh yeah, that team uh, fucking it, ruled. That team is great, and like Lenny Dykstra is like. Six gin and tonics in at the start of that interview. Like, he is hammered. By the way, I like how you snuck a movie cast into sports cast. You had the hustle and flow take. I haven't seen that movie, and I remember liking it. Is it really bad? I remember liking it when it came out. Well, I mean, at the time, it was kind of cool to have that music that I liked be given that sort of platform. But then... You know, it turned Three Six Mafia more into like a meme than anything. It, it it's just like corny in a way that a lot of mid aughts culture looks now. But even at the time, it there's this one scene you got like you got to see the scene where like DJ Qualls, who you know you know who DJ Qualls is, he looks the same in every movie. Oh. He provides like the oh, kind yeah. of white boy color. In a, and then he just he he was a giant of aughts era cinema. Absolutely. I, I, he hasn't really been around since then, but he was in Road Trip. Yeah. He's in Hustle and Flow. He was like the cousin Greg he... of his time. Uh, <laughs> and, and and he gives a speech. It's like He's like giving this like overzealous white boy retelling of rap history. You know, it's like from backdoor man to back that ass up. Like it's all black music. It's just something along those lines. And I mean, oh. it's like a very real phenomenon. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's, I don't know, maybe the movie's good, but like, it just kind of gets into what we see so often on movies and TV where it's centered around like a musician or a writer. 
and it's trying to convince you that this writer or musician is actually incredible when the song itself sucks. I mean, we're talking about like Drive Shaft. Uh, that thing you do is pretty much the only movie that convincingly uh, pulled that off. Yeah. So R.I.P. Adam Schlesinger. Yes. He he nailed that one. Um, Terrence Howard. Speaking of separate, he, he was from yo the yeah he he was like my like quite literally like my neighbor when I was growing up. Like he lived in Lafayette Hill, Pennsylvania. We used to see him walking wow. our, his dog. It was super weird. Okay, so we should get out of sports cast here because <laughs> it's turning into movie cast. At some point, we need to do Terrence Howard cast. You, <laughs> Mr. Holland's opus, right? Is he in that? That was him, man. Because I know Dreyfus is in that. Dreyfus yeah, is when he was starting uh, to get famous. When that movie was coming out, and he was starting to get famous. It's like, oh yeah, Terrence Howard. He lives down the street. Like, is he like one of the students? I can't fucking remember. Because <laughs> I'm trying to think of how old he would have been. Look, we, we didn't have a lot of celebrities in Lafayette Hill, Pennsylvania. So, uh... Mr. Holland's opus. Oh my god, <laughs> I remember that movie. He's really upset because he has a son who's deaf. Oh, and and like. He's a music guy, and a big plot of the movie is him trying to like get over the fact that his son can't hear. It's like, what kind of asshole is Mr. Holland here? <laughs> Come on, man. Get over it. Oh, awful. Anyway, okay. End of sports cast, end movie cast, end Terrence Howard cast. Let's get to indie cast here, because we do have some uh, really heavy good hitters. Yeah, heavy hitters this week, and I like how you created a narrative thread there that didn't occur to me of veterans. These are all veterans here who are in, I don't want to say middle age because Mac DeMarco isn't, well, he might be actually, he's probably around 40, right? DeMarco? Uh, I want to say, I'm going to guess 35. He is, let's, let's just go to the tape. He is 32. Holy shit. Oh, wow. Really? (laughs) Oh, 32 years old. Fuck. He's like, he's like a old 32. Yeah, just because he's been around. He's like a running back where you're like, yeah, man, I don't know if I draft Todd Gurley this year, and like he's 27 years old. He's like he's the Ezekiel Elliott of uh, (laughs) uh, of indie rock. Um, Let's talk about the National first. They have a new album out today. It's called First Two Pages of Frankenstein. It's the ninth National record. Uh, It's their first since I Am Easy to Find, which came out uh, four years ago. And I wrote about this record for Uprock, so if you want to read my review, please check that out. Otherwise, I'm going to be basically saying the same things that I said in the <laughs> review uh, in this podcast. So you probably don't need to read it, but at least click on it. You know, give me some clicks. Um, but, you know, I feel like you and I are at different places with The National. We're both historically fans of this band. I want to hear what you have to say about this record, because I know that you've said before on the show that you've faded a little bit with this with this band like you're not as interested in in them as as you used to be and i have to say that like i am easy to find was the first national record that didn't connect with me Mm. uh and i was thinking about it in relation to this new album that i think my issue has been that they've really embraced this idea of collaboration uh where they have this kind of open door policy with like different musicians who come in and add to their music. And you can see that with Aaron Desner. He has his side project with Justin Vernon, Big Red Machine, and 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 like the music festivals that they've done. It, it's all about collaborating, which is something philosophically I think is really cool. I think 
it's something I can see it being where if you if you've been in a band for 20 years, that can make it feel a little more fresh. You know, you're bringing in new people, new perspectives, and I think that that has been something that has probably extended the life of this band, which in a way always seems like they're on the verge of breaking up. At least like that's what they talk about in their interviews. Like this album has another they almost broke up narrative that's been attached to it. Uh, but I Am Easy to Find, you know, it was a record that for me, it felt like, oh, the National, they're almost like guest stars on their own record. Mm. And I just feel like they've kind of gotten away from being the version of the band that I guess I still love the most, which is the five of them playing in a room and it's just them and maybe have like Padma Newsome. Yeah, we got to talk about stuff. Padma. Like, I, but, I'm like, I was hoping that you would... Man, I got Padma coming in, but other than that, it's like basically the band. And I have to say, like on this new record, uh, the parts of it where it feels like they kind of get back to that are my favorite parts. Uh, For instance, there's a song on this record called "Tropic Morning News," which I think is the best song on the record, and I would actually call a classic national song. And the thing about that song is that elements of that song. And I don't know if it's like the the basic track or how much of it is called from a live performance that was recorded in, in, in Hamburg and it was widely bootlegged. But, you know, they were playing these songs on the road last year and I saw a couple shows on that tour and I really liked those shows and I really liked the new songs that they were playing. And on this record, they've integrated some of those performances from the road into the record. And that's true on Tropic Morning News. There's another song called Eucalyptus that I think is really great that has that same kind of energy. And those are the moments where I felt like, okay, this is what I want from the national. And there's a lot, there's quite a bit of that on this record, but then there's also the thing that they've been doing recently, which is, uh, you know, you've got famous guest stars. You have Phoebe Bridgers on a couple songs. You have Taylor Swift on a song called the Alcott, which I thought was funny. Like when they sent out the promo stream for this record, the Taylor Swift song wasn't on it. Like you Mm. had to ask for that song separately (laughs) because they're just worried about that leaking, which I I think it actually did this week. Um, And, you know, God love them because that song is probably going to be the biggest hit on the record. And I love the national and I want them to have a big audience. And from a commercial standpoint, I totally get they're opening themselves up to an audience that isn't just sad dads in their forties. That totally makes sense. But listening to the record, because I think this is like a near great national record. I, I would give this like a B or on the pitchfork scale, <laughs> like a 7.1, 7.2. Mm. Um, I just want them to make that record. And I don't think they're going to actually do this, at least like not for a full record. I, I still have a dream that they're going to go back to the alligator days where it's just the five of them with a crate of whiskey and they make songs that are where Matt Berger is either yelling or he's like crooning in a very sort of sad way. That's the record I want. And there's enough of that on this album to make me like it, but it's not all the way there for me. Yeah. I mean, if they were to go back, like if, if they were to be able to go back to the, the alligator type, the national, like I think that sound is within their reach, but I think that, that draws the distinction between like latter day national and old the national where I, from let's call it, you know, part of trouble will find me on. They stopped writing 
the national songs and just became like writing in air quotes the national songs. Um, I, I saw that Matt Berninger talked about like how you know, for a year he underwent like some serious writer's block, which I feel they always talk about like breaking up or Matt Berninger going through like writer's block on every album nowadays. And I actually saw that he um, took the approach that Jeff Tweedy talks about in uh, How to Write One Song, where if you're feeling stuck, you just find a melody, you f- pick a book off the shelf and just start trying to find sentences that fit with it, regardless of the intention. And that's kind of what The National has been to me, where it's not like Matt Berninger is playing like a character like Leonard Cohen or whatever, or embodying a certain type of guy. He's embodying someone who just writes national songs for a living. And um, I think that's what you know, bugs me more than, you know, the guest stars taking the focus off him or just the music sounding a lot more polished and inert. It's that there's no real discernible emotional core to this stuff. It's like, if I had to like come up with a comparative point, it's sort of how uh, after pop or after up every REM or U2 album that like sounded even remotely like their old one was a return to form even though like they were both very overt instances of a band trying to just discover their old sound rather than pushing things forward. Look, I haven't listened to I, I Am Easy to Find since 2019, um, but I can at least appreciate what that was trying to do. I would probably would rather have that than, you know, the National making a 7.0 version of themselves. Like, I almost wish this album was worse. Like, it's so close enough to being good that it just reminds me of a time when they were, like, probably my favorite indie rock band in the world, which is, like, the Alligator through High Violet era. And, you know, I I love, like, High Violet might be the one that's my favorite, or at least the one I listen to the most, because... It's you get a real sense of like what they were going through as people uh, in that era. And I cannot make heads or tails of like what I mean, I know what Matt Berger's talking about now, but it's all like I'm like, what inspired you to write this other than the drive to make another national album? Yeah, I I don't know. I, this is a question that always exists for bands that have been around for a long time, which is. Do you reinvent yourselves, which I think I am easy to find is like a pretty clear example of them reinventing themselves by integrating all of these uh, female vocalists uh, where, you know, Matt Berninger sometimes isn't even on the song that much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, he's again, he's almost like guesting on his own song uh, at times on that album. Um Or do you retrench and do you just become like the purest version of what you do? And you know, obviously it's a case-by-case basis. It depends on the execution and everything. But I tend to think that being the best version of you is, like, the superior approach. And -hmm. just writing good songs and, like, your style. It just is more satisfying, even if, again, from a philosophical perspective, it might not be that exciting. Because I just don't think when a band has been around for 20, 25 years that reinventing yourself really works you know it's great for talking about like when you when you do an album but like like what's a good example of that like what's a band that i guess low is the only 
band maybe that did that successfully like I, i'm trying to think of other examples i mean i, I think I, wilco albums regardless of like whether you see them as just like kind of being returned to form or you know advance like incremental advances i always get a sense of like where jeff tweedy is coming from uh which makes all of them interesting i mean like low is obviously the model of like it's unbelievable how much mileage they got out of you know, what was once seen to be an inflexible sound. But um, yeah, like national just to me is like an institution now, you know? Yeah. And I do wonder to what degree Aaron Desner working with other artists like dilutes what the national does. Because now, like you say, it is an institution and it is like a sound, you know, like those Taylor Swift records are in the national vein. They're almost like national records in a sense you know, like we haven't had a new national record in four years, but it doesn't feel like it, you know? And I yeah. think that is partly why, because we've had Aaron Desner doing all these different things. And again, God bless him. You know, I, I admire Aaron Desner and, you know, he can probably now build 10 Long Pond Studios yeah. like all over the world <laughs> with the money he's made from working with Taylor Swift. Um, but I don't know. Again, I think the moments on this record that I appreciate the most are the ones where I feel like they're getting back to being a band. Mm-hmm. And there's enough of that on this record to make me recommend it. I don't think it's a great national record. Again, I'd give it a B, three and a half stars, 7.2, like, mm-hmm. you know, different, on different scales there. That, that's about where I think it, it slots. But um, I do fe- like it more than the previous record. Does it feel that, like, despite... Um, you know, having Phoebe Bridgers and having Taylor Swift on there, that there's not a ton of momentum going into the album release. Uh, Like that Phoebe single just came and went, and I didn't see anyone really talking about it. I think this kind of brings up the fundamental irony of me right now with the National. It's that I, I am fully in the demographic that they were always said to appeal to, which is like 35 to 45 year old male, like sports and now like their music has like no power over me whatsoever. Whereas when I was like 25 or 27, it's like, Oh man, this is, this is aspirational stuff right here. This is what it's going to be like when I'm old and living in the city. And um, yeah, I just, uh, it's just, I find this phenomenon happening a lot where like the music that sounded to me, like being old and dignified at 25, like I have trouble relating to it now that I'm old and dignified. Well, I think the National had a thing on what I think most people would agree are their strongest records, where they aged with their audience, mm-hmm. where it seemed like each record was addressing a certain period of, of your life. Like, Alligator is very much like a late 20s type record, I think. Yeah. And, and Boxer is kind of like an early 30s. High Violet is maybe mid 30s. Trouble Will Find Me is like, you're settling down now, mm-hmm. late 30s, early 40s. And um, I don't know if like the records after that have the same kind of feeling, but that might be a totally myopic opinion. You know, I, I saw someone yesterday uh, responding to my review saying, like, I Am Easy to Find is my favorite national record. Huh. Uh, I think they are that kind of band that has different audiences for different eras. And in terms of their momentum with this record, you know, I'm sure that there's like a lot of people that discovered them because of Taylor Swift who are probably really excited for this record. And this might be their favorite because Phoebe Bridgers and Taylor Swift are on it. 
So that's interesting. I'm curious to see how that unfolds. I mean, if you go if you go to a national show now, people don't get excited when they play alligator songs. Yeah, you know they get if they you know, play they, alligator songs. Aside yeah, from right. Mr. November, you know. Yeah, there's like that audience. Uh, you know, they have a different audience like at their live shows now, uh, which is a testament to what they're doing. Obviously, uh, so yeah, I'm curious to to see what the response is like. But uh, you know, for me as someone who's been around for a long time with this band, I wouldn't call this a return to form. I guess my hope, and I don't think they'll do this, but I hope that this is a stepping stone to them making more of a band record mm-hmm. next time, because I do think that that would be exciting. That does seem like something kind of genuinely different now with them, because they haven't really done that in a while. Uh, and I think people would be psyched for it, but again, I am a 45 year old sad dad. So take that (laughs) opinion with a grain of salt. Um, let's get to our next record here. And I can confidently say that neither one of us have listened to this album in full. (laughs) I'm going to go on a limb and assume you haven't listened to this album in full. It's called one Wayne G it's by Mac DeMarco. 199 songs on this record. I believe it's about eight hours long. <laughs> it is indeed about uh, eight hours long. And can I just say before we... Because t- we're not going to review this album. I think we're just going to talk about this record as something that exists. But I, I got to give a shout out to Anthony Fantano. Because I saw that he reviewed this album this week. I didn't I didn't watch his review. Um, but he did post a video about this album. So presumably he listened to all eight hours of this record and he, and he posted a video about it. And that is why he is the, what does he call himself? The internet's leading music nerd. He's the busiest music, something along those lines. I mean, that's he, why he's earned the title yeah. with that because, you know, and, and hats off to Fantano. <laughs> I like Fantano, by the way, I feel like there's a lot of hate yeah. towards Fantano in the music critic community. There's a lot of spite, Toward him, but I respect what he does, and I respect that he recorded a review of this eight-hour album that not even Mac DeMarco's probably heard. Here, you want to know? You know what I'm looking at right now? Uh, I'm, I'm just looking at the Spotify streams, expecting that you know the, the first off the first song, 2018-05-12, It's titled like a like a apps note. It has 846,000 plays, and it's four minutes long. But the the interesting part is that you would think scrolling down, like it would just get less and less and less. Au contraire, song number 177 has 162,000 streams on Spotify. And there's just like these random songs in the middle of this that just have so much more plays for some reason. Like... 2020-817 Proud True Toyota. This is song 75. About 500,000 plays. What is determining this? I am just dying to... Like, I, I know that it's, like, silly to treat music like sports or, like, just quantifying things, but I really want to get under the hood. Uh, That's amazing. I mean, yeah. are people just putting this on before they go to bed and letting it play, like, all night long, and then when the album's over, they know that it's time to wake up? Because you can get your full eight hours of sleep listening to this album. I I wonder if some of that comes into play with those spins. Um, but it's fascinating that there'd be different 
uh, you know, sort of like there'd be spikes in the middle because that yeah. does suggest that people are manually going through this album and yeah. listening to each one. Yo, there's one. And, and, and by the way, the, these are most, are they all instrumentals? I think it's all, yeah. this is this is going off the Five Easy Hot Dogs album that came out earlier this year. One of these songs is 22 minutes. There's another that's six minutes. Like these are not like snippets. This is straight up pasticcio medley type shit. You know, to 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 create a bridge to our next topic, but you know, yeah, let's good. not get ahead yeah. of ourselves. I was gonna say that's good. Uh, that's good foreshadowing here uh, <laughs> on the pod. Uh, but yeah, this is a you know one of the longest albums of all time. I think we can call it that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a, a surprise release. Uh, I think it dropped on Friday. Yeah. I think Mac, and, Ma- Mac uh, DeMarco seems surprised that it dropped too. This is like almost like a data breach. It's like the WikiLeaks <laughs> of like Mac DeMarco's phone. Like people heard Five Easy Hot Dogs and they're like, fuck man, I need we 10 want more easy of this. hot dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like a hot dog eating contest. Yeah, it's fucking Kobayashi this shit right here. Um, how much do we want to read into this? Uh, <laughs> do we want to like make a statement about this album? This and Mark is DeMarco is like dying or something like that. And he's, what? this is him like trying to create like a, like a legacy or something like that. <laughs> well, you know, this week people continued to talk about the Frank Ocean Coachella incident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there seems to be a desire out there to think peace eyes. If I can make up that word, it's kind of an awkward yeah. phrasing. But I know what uh, you're talking about. So Yeah, pe- the, 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 people really want to look at that and say that it's the end of something. That Frank Ocean tanking at Coachella, that it's like the end of the 2010s, that it's the end of festivals being significant, that it's the end of like a certain kind of of stardom. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we really want to declare something about this performance. And it may very well be one of those things or all of those things. It may just be a crappy festival performance that doesn't <laughs> matter. I mean, like with Frank Ocean... His genius, if he's, you know, if if we assume he's doing this deliberately, is that he does so little mm-hmm. that anything he does seems significant. So it's like Frank Ocean blew his nose yesterday. What does this mean about the future of tissues? Yeah, <laughs> did he use a handkerchief? Does this mean that millennials like handkerchiefs over paper? Is this an ecological ecological statement about uh, climate you know, change and climate change? You know, we have to uh, cut down our on our use of uh, of paper products. I mean, that's the level of discourse with Frank Ocean. Um, oh, should we do that with Mac DeMarco too? Because he's of that same generation. Like yeah. he was a very significant artist. Dorm room poster indie. shit. Yeah. Very like, influential. And now he's in this kind of weird era making instrumental songs. He hasn't toured in a while. He hasn't put out a proper record in a while. I guess no disrespect to this 199 song album. I, I guess proper record, I mean songs with vocals and a traditional Mac DeMarco record. He hasn't done that in a while. Is this also a rejection of pop stardom? Like, are, what should we read anything larger into this, or is this just like a wacky Mac DeMarco thing? I mean, kind of. I, I did. It, it did take a little bit of uh, digging to sense a you know, perhaps like a greater trend, and like the fact that like people are trying to think piece the Frank Ocean performance. Like, 
if you consider music to be very similar to sports or politics, not to bring us back to the sports cast or politicast type thing, but you got to make like it's a twenty four hour content cycle. You got to create. You got to you, you got to create on the content farm. And I mean, I've read like I don't know how many fucking mock NFL drafts I've read <laughs> over the past year. Like I'll just read anything that like creates content. And like Frank Ocean. Uh, yeah, we're just going to continue to do that. But I think with him and Mac DeMarco, I could see like similarities in terms of like, I don't know, rejecting whatever the expectations of fame are. If like you put it up against, say, like Japanese breakfast playing every single festival known to mankind or just, um, uh, I guess what we were looking at with you know the era of like housey you know, getting, breaking up with her label about like TikTok stuff. It does seem in a way that uh, like a rejection of having to be constantly present. And I think this will ultimately be good for Mac DeMarco's reputation in the long term. I mean, you know, he's released, I think he started his own record label and, uh, you know, Frank Ocean, he won't be releasing albums or touring on any sort of, you know, known song cycle. And I think that, the desire to play this up may stem from this desire in general to, I don't know, create more mystery with our artists. I think that there is this underlying fatigue with the constant presence of music and the constant presence of people on Twitter. And maybe it's just like in a weird way, like just some old school grasp of mystique. Yeah. I by releasing that, eight, by releasing eight hours of music, that somehow, in a way, like uh, makes you seem more remote. Yeah, that's you know, I I can buy into that, uh, especially as the co-host of an indie rock podcast who needs to talk about narratives <laughs> every week. Yeah, I can get behind that. Um, yeah, with Matt DeMarco, I, I I will say it is intriguing to me what he's been what he's done this year. Because I don't know what he's going to do next. I, he recently announced some shows he's going to be doing in New York, L.A., Paris, and London this summer. Yeah. Where he, I think he's playing all the instrumental songs. So I don't know. I, I you know I wouldn't be shocked if he announced like again a conventional Mac DeMarco record next week, or if he waited another couple years. You know I have no idea what he's going to do next. So I guess it's working on me this mm-hmm. Mac DeMarco era in terms of building mystery. Well, speaking of building mystery, <laughs> Sarah McLaughlin get... cast. Is that is that building a mystery? Yes. Okay. It's a good song. <laughs> it is a great song. Sarah McLaughlin. We fuck with Sarah um, McLaughlin here. Fumbling towards ecstasy, I believe, is the name of that record. Yep. No, building um, a mystery, I think, is on uh, surfacing. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, oh, what's that? Song? Anyway, we gotta do a Adia. There's a uh, sweet surrender. Um, sweet there surrender. Is, That's a good song. Um, Possession. Yeah, Possession, that's a good song too. I had a huge crush on Sarah McLaughlin in high school too. She was just like this beautiful woman singing these beautiful songs and she just had such a vibe. I will remember you, dogs. She had a great vibe. Great vibe. You're just like, oh, I wanna like go to a coffee shop with Sarah McLaughlin and just talk (laughs) about politics and you know, veganism and taking care of pets and all that kind of stuff. Um Let's talk about the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, you know, it's hilarious to me. You know, our, our audience is, is great. We love our audience. 
And it's just funny what our audience demands for us to talk about. And Smashing Pumpkins having a new triple album rock opera. This is like at the top of the list. I had people messaging me, are you going to talk about this album? This album came out last week, I think. Sort Adam? of. Like two thirds of it is out as of this recording, I think. Right. So there's a third volume dropping. May 5th, is that I next? think. Yeah. May 5th. Okay, so we've heard two thirds of this album. It's called Adam, A T U M. It's a rock opera in three acts. <laughs> and this morning, I spent way too much time on Smashing Pumpkins Reddit reading about <laughs> the plot of this. Of how, this much, album. how much does Billy Corgan post on Smashing Pumpkins Reddit? I, I know you do. You know he does. I don't know, but like there's some serious Adam scholars out there doing the work. And I appreciate it. I mean, I couldn't get that deep into this Reddit post describing the plot of this album because it's just like, it's like Dune level convoluted. You know, like Frank Herbert would listen to this album and say, this is too complicated for me. Mm-hmm. All I know, okay, it's about, like, do you know the plot of this album? I I would love to say that I do. Now, mind you, when I did my 20th anniversary piece on Machina Machines of God, I did get into the Smashing Pumpkins lore, and it just it it just confirmed for me that like until Billy Corgan starts really doing everything himself, his vision will never be fully realized. Like apparently, Ghost in the Glass Children is part of what was intended to be this animated series, like this pre gorillas sort of thing. So no, I, I I'm gonna guess that if. You know, Billy Corgan's password is any indication. The plot of Atom is like a bare, like a barely fictionalized version of himself fighting against I don't know the ignorance of the masses. It's like sort of like in that Muse tool, like borderline Rogan just asking questions, maybe getting into some cancel culture type shit. Am I well, am yeah, I off the mark here? Well, okay, so it, <laughs> the, at Atom. Up and at them, yes. Is that what we... Okay, up... Uh, <laughs> I think that's how we pronounce it. Okay, it's about a dude named Shiny. He's <laughs> an astronaut named Shiny, S-H-I-N-Y. And he's lost in space. And this may or may not be a metaphor for cancel culture. <laughs> because he's been cast out of Earth, apparently. And that's about all I know because again, I, I was reading this this Reddit post about uh, the plot of this uh, album, and like each song had like a long paragraph. Just so like there's like a ton of plot like in every song, like okay, just like the first song, which is the title track. Mm-hmm. This is part of the Reddit post. It says, "In the distant future, we are introduced to a beautifully designed spacecraft." Hovering above the Earth, which has descended into riots and general unhappiness among the population. Draw connections to the modern world if you want to, uh, right there. Um, as the distance grows between us and the Earth, we realize that the world as it has been presented to us is not all that it seemed. Damn. There are structures built on the dark side of the moon. There are faces on Mars' surface. And as we float closer toward the sun, we find that the sun, and this is in quotes, is not what we were told it was. So even the sun has lied to us <laughs> on this album. Um, 
so I was listening to this record this week, and I have to say that I was like kind of shocked by how poorly produced it is. Mm. Uh, I think in a DM to you, I said that it reminds me of like one of these late period Marvel movies, like where the CGI is really bad. Yes. You know, like, like <laughs> Ant-Man and like all these bombs that have come out recently. It has that kind of vibe to it. And, you know, I, what I expect from a Smashing Pumpkins record at this point is not necessarily like great songs, <laughs> but like I do want cool guitar tones, cool drum sounds, cool synth tones. Like that album they put out, I guess it's about a decade now, Oceana came out in 2012. I think that record has that. And I think there's some pretty good songs on that record actually, but it it sounds good. It sounds like a 90s Smashing Pumpkins record. And it's it's like, okay, that's good enough for me. This album though, it's like a band camp record. It's like someone made this in their bedroom. I'm like, like, can he not afford Flood anymore? <laughs> not to make a triple album. I don't know. I mean. Uh, like Alan Mulder, fine. He's maybe out of reach. We can't get Flood in here? Yeah, Come well. on. Like, I, I, I mean, do, you, like, do you agree? I, I just think this album, beyond the songs, it sounds cheap in a way that is surprising to me, given that the Pumpkins are still like an arena headlining act. I, I don't know. I, I, was, I was really kind of disappointed just in this record sonically. Yeah, what, what? So I just want to like stay off the bat. There is absolutely no fucking chance of me listening to even a third of this album. Like I put my work in. <laughs> what I, you didn't listen to it? I listened to some of it. I listened to the the singles. <laughs> what do you? I mean, I got a day job and shit. If I'm not gonna listen to, like, I almost think I'd rather listen to eight hours of Mac DeMarco than two hours of Smashing Pumpkins. But look, I put my work in with Sear or CYR, whatever it was called in 2020. Um, and I think that is a very important turning point for the Smashing Pumpkins because the, putting aside whatever plot Billy Corgan says that he, you know, has there, uh, it was him teaching himself how to produce music on Logic. Now, I just, you know, to give you a a sense of like the inner mechanics of IndieCast, I record this audio on Logic, it's about 200 bucks or two to 300 bucks. You can get it on your Mac and, um, you know, you can get like literally studio quality music made in your own bedroom. If I wanted to, I could put like the telephone vocal filter on this and this episode, I might sound like I'm in the strokes. You can get like a lot of really cool production tricks and presets you can also get some of the shittiest guitar tones known to man. Like sometimes like it'll be, you'll be like, okay, I want the, the, the British rock uh, amp preset. And you just don't know how this was intended to be good. And that's what comes up when I listen to Smashing Pumpkins music nowadays. It's like you mentioned uh, Bandcamp. It's like this sounds like it was produced on an iPad, which you could totally make <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins sounding music on something like this. But I don't expect that from like from Smashing Pumpkins themselves. And I mean, I think we can all agree the last thing Smashing Pumpkins needed in order to you know return to their uh, peak was putting more on uh you know putting more on billy corgan i don't know if i would listen to a three-hour smashing pumpkins album nowadays but what i would watch is like a get back style documentary which you totally know billy corgan would be down for just 
watching him at a computer while like James Iha or like Jimmy Chamberlain just look at their phones for three hours straight. I mean, look, I, I, I think being in the Smashing Pumpkins is probably rewarding in some ways, but I would love to just know what it's like to be James Iha right now in the process yeah. of making Smashing Pumpkins music. Yeah, I... <sighs> I mean, the Get Back documentary would be great. I mean, just a documentary about the pumpkins in general is like one of the great white whales that's still out there. There's been so many music documentaries. Yeah. But like a Smashing Pumpkins comprehensive, you know, do it History of Eagles style where it's like a four hour thing. I think I like, think both of us would be called on to contribute to that, right? Well, I would hope so. But if it were just the band members, that that'd, that'd be fine too. Yeah. I mean, just that would be an amazing movie uh, because you know Billy's going to say some bullshit. Like <laughs> that'd be great. It'd be amazing. Yeah. And so hopefully that movie uh, is already in production or it will be down the road. I'd, I'd be so excited for a Smashing Pumpkins doc. Um, what I want more than anything is um, the one thing I would like Billy Corgan to take hold of. Like sometimes you'll see artists do like rank your albums type lists. And I, you know, I, as much, as much as I enjoyed the top 50 smashing pumpkins list that you made, uh, I think it was last year. Like does Billy Corgan like fully believe that he's like still producing heat here? Like how many Adam songs would he put in a top 50 smashing pumpkins list? Uh, I mean, I would say, well, it's interesting because he did an interview recently with Rolling Stone Mm-hmm. Where he said, like they asked him, how many songs from this album are you going to be playing on your tour this summer? And he said four or five. Okay. And I was actually surprised by that. Too that little or too many? I thought that was fewer than I expected. I thought he would be like, oh, we're going to play the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so four or five seems reasonable. And and you should check out that interview. It was actually pretty interesting. He sounds um, relatively humbled. At huh. this point, in that interview, and he uh, like he seems to be a little more self aware of like where he's at. So I don't know. He may only put four or five Adam songs on his fifty Smashing Pumpkins best songs list, which is four or five too many, by the way. But you know, he, I don't think he would be overly excessive. One thing that is exciting, I don't know if you heard this news, but and this was he said this in the same Rolling Stone interview I just referenced. Swan box set. Yes. Coming our way with like 65. Yeah. 65, 65 unreleased songs. That I do want to hear. I do want to hear the Swan box set. I actually think that that, and I say that unironically. I mean, somewhat ironically, because yeah. I think it, it's ridiculous. But I, you know, I wrote about Swan earlier this year. I like that record. I think it's the best thing he's done in the 21st century is the Swan record. It's the one record that I had. I think has songs that I would put with the best of like '90s Smashing Pumpkins. Um, I would but, argue that because Machina came out technically in 2000, like we're talking like January 2000. I would say right. I would still I would say that's like my. I wouldn't say that's his best. I think it's my favorite. Um, but yeah, like okay. six, 65 Swan songs, like. I'm just dying to know, like, are okay, like, are these like 
endless numbers of like demo variations on like honestly or is it like, i don't think so five I mean, albums worth of like zwan songs that again because i know that had like sort of a plot too right <laughs> yeah um i don't i don't know if the <laughs> album is a concept album like there's a the title track is like really long mm. and it has sort of like a christ like narrative to it um yeah that was like a but, cover of like an old spiritual right i don't think so i mean it, it, he may have like incorporated but there's not like an 11 minute spiritual gotcha <laughs> you know that's a, so i don't think so i think this but, just um, reveals like you know when we're talking about like our lack of knowledge of the zwan uh you know narrative or the smashing pumpkins reddit it's like every single time i feel like oh I've written more about Smashing Pumpkins than anyone, you know, or that, like, I'm an expert. No fucking way. There are people who are so much more better ver Like, I would be, I feel like I'd be a fraud if I tried to write a Smashing Pumpkins book. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, they have one of the most committed fan bases, I think, of a band from that era. And they're also a band that I think, and we've talked about this before, they transcend their generation, I think, better yes. than a lot of the 90s bands do. Like, they, they feel like they have attained, you know, like what The Cure had, you know, and, in, in, you know, people who weren't around in the 80s, they still listen to those 80s Cure records after yeah. the fact. And I think the Pumpkins kind of have a similar thing. So definitely listen to those records. I don't know if you need to listen to this new one. Actually, do listen to it so you can tell me if it's any good. <laughs> yeah. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so this is an album that I've been really... It's one of the rare albums where I got the promo super early, so I can say I've been enjoying it for quite a long time. And it's... Uh, I, be, the, I think the album title is And the Charm. It's by, a, it's by Avalon Emerson, and it's called Avalon Emerson and the Charm. Avalon Emerson is someone I interviewed for Stereo Gum about a month ago, and uh, she had spent like the past decade as a DJ in San Francisco and Berlin. It was a very interesting conversation because, um, you know, just super intelligent, thoughtful person uh, about music and about trends and about like where electronic music is gone. It's it's definitely a different vibe than you know the usual me interviewing some emo adjacent band of like twenty three year olds, but um, you know she had established like a real reputation she had done like coachella glastonbury uh her dj kicks compilation from 2020 is super good she's done remixes of robin but also slow dive and that's really where this album lands it's you know you would call it like dream pop but it's also a little more like european techno um if you liked i don't know basically any dj kicks compilation from the past 20 years or the last dj co's album um or like cocteau twins but make it a little more like california vibey this hits a very specific target um and it's it's just a really refreshing put it on like whenever i just want to listen to something album but there's a lot of substance to it as well and more to the point like you know this is someone making their first songwriter album at the age of 34 which you know is kind of inspiring i always like to see people you know, kind of find new ground to cover uh, when they're not like 23, you know. So maybe I'll learn how to, you know, use logic like Billy Corgan to make my own, uh, you know, make my own version of Adam, 
you know, inspired by both Billy Corgan and Avalon Emerson. The record I'm going to talk about is called Forgive the City, and it's by a band from Nashville called, appropriately enough, Country Westerns. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of band that, like, (laughs) is pandering to people like me to an almost egregious degree. I mean, this is a classic-sounding bar band rock type group. You got some elements of the replacements. You got like a little dash of Springsteen, especially in the vocals. There's some of like the rockier side of R.E.M., a little bit of Big Star in there. Just like record collector rock right down the middle. Uh, But it's a really well-executed record. I think sometimes albums like this can feel a little hermetically sealed, like it's been packaged to, again, appeal to a certain bearded guy (laughs) demographic. But I think that, This record is gritty and sweaty in a way that feels a little more genuine, a little more organic. And uh, it's a record that I've I've really found myself enjoying, especially as it pertains to something that we talked about last week, which is backyard barbecue music. This is like a band that went into a studio to consciously make that kind of record. Like you put this record on and you will be instantly, you know, cooking up some cheeseburgers within five minutes i guarantee it so very well-timed record for the type of for the time of year that we're in in the spring as we're easing into summer here it's a record i expect to spend quite a bit as i hang out in my backyard it's called forgive the city the band is country westerns the record is out today and if you are like me, if you have similar taste, I think you will enjoy this record. I cannot believe you didn't bring up Diarrhea Planet when talking about this band being from Nashville. And like, I listened to it, so I'm like, I bet these guys, if they haven't opened for Titus Andronicus, they're going to. And lo and behold, they are opening for Titus Andronicus. Yes, 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 exactly. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 